I am now going to turn it over to Mary for our lecture. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> um, and welcome, everybody. Um, I, I can only see a few people's faces, so I, I, I don't see all of you. Uh, but I'm glad that you came. Um, I want to thank Francis Cavern for inviting me to speak this evening. Um, we'd originally scheduled an in-person talk for June 18th, but COVID changed a lot of things, including my hair, and they decided not to cancel completely, but try to work out a virtual event. So this is the first time I've ever done a talk this way, so I hope that you'll be understanding. Um, this book is the result of about 30 years of work on and off and has been just a huge part of my life. And my husband, um, who you may see coming in and out of the room, is um, has never known me when I wasn't working on this book. So um, it's kind of a big deal to now have it finished and not know what I'm going to do next. Actually, I do know, but um, just not having this in my life is, is uh, something. Um, now most of it, throughout my time at Mount Vernon, my research has been driven by topics um, that the public really want to know more about. Um, their interest has resulted in books on a number of topics, including George Washington's religious beliefs, which were dealt with in my first book entitled In the Hands of a Good Providence, Religion and the Life of George Washington, which came out in 2008. Um, people often ask us about what the Washingtons ate, um, which resulted in Dining with the Washingtons, Historic Recipes, Entertaining and Hospitality from Mount Vernon in 2011. Uh, for which I wrote two chapters and more than 20 sidebars. And people have also indicated that they wanted to know more about family members other than George Washington, hence the publication of a short biography of Martha Washington, which came out in 2017. Uh, one of the topics our visitors clearly wanted to know more about was slavery, and especially George Washington's role as a slave owner. More specifically, they, they really wanted to know answers to the questions was, was George Washington a good slave owner? Or he was good to his slaves, wasn't he? So to anybody who's looking to this book to provide those answers, I wanted to say upfront that some of the worst things people think about in terms of slavery, so whipping, keeping a person in shackles, tracking somebody down with dogs, um, or selling somebody away so they'd never see their family again. All of these things happened either at Mount Vernon or on other plantations under the management of George Washington. While it was rare we knew slaves were sold to the West Indies as a punishment for their behavior, this would have been akin to being sentenced to life in prison or perhaps a death sentence because many of the people who were uh, new immigrants to the West Indies would die within five years of, of their arrival. In another case, Washington threatened a young man with being sold in the Caribbean in the hopes that such a dire threat would lead to an improvement in both his work habits and after-hours proclivities. Just within the last couple of years, in going over and cataloging objects uh, ex excavated some years ago at Mount Var Vernon, our archaeologists found two sets of shackles. Now, as we'll discuss a little later, some notes written by a young artist in the 1830s recorded stories recalled by George Washington's nephew, including one that makes it impossible for me to look at the beautiful bowling green on the east side of the mansion, or the west side of the mansion, um, without great sadness. This book, as I mentioned, is the result of many years of study undertaken as part of my job. My interest in the topic began many years before. It was during my early years in elementary school that I first learned about slavery and the legacy of prejudice that still endured and still does now many years later. Um, this was at a time when the nation was commemorating the centennial of the Civil War, even as the civil rights movement played out each night on the evening news, reminding us that the full promise of the war had not been reached. My interest in history had early been fostered by my father, but it was in graduate school at the University of Virginia that I fell in love with African-American history. There I started learning the academic story of slavery, partly through a seminar co-taught by professors Robert Cross and Steve Ennis 
and most importantly by a course called Slave Systems taught by Professor Joseph Miller. The latter was probably the best course I've ever been privileged to take, and I will always be grateful to Mr. Miller at Mr. Jefferson's University um, for opening up this new world to me, as well as for the kindness and understanding he showed to all of his students. I came to work at Mount Vernon shortly before receiving my degree from UVA and immediately faced an interesting situation where no one spoke of slaves. They were servants. And I could see that roughly 35 to 40 years of historiography on this topic were unacknowledged. Things would change at Mount Vernon in the ensuing years, and I've really been pleased to be, have been there to see and be part of that transformation. This volume began life in the late 1980s when my boss, Mount Vernon's longtime curator, Christine Meadows, attended a conference in Charlottesville on the interpretation of slavery at historic homes. She came back full of enthusiasm and asked me to drop my research project on foodways at that time to focus instead on slavery at Mount Vernon. Writing on this topic began in 1993 as a series of essays on slave life and was prepared as background for a group of incoming interns who would be spending the summer reconstructing George Washington's 16-sided barn and growing appropriate crops in the fields surrounding it in an area known as Hell Hole, but now called the Pioneer Farm Site. Ms. Meadows gave the go-ahead to spend about four months pulling together and making sense of the research I'd been doing up to that point. In addition to serving as the basis for the interpretation of the Pioneer Farm, the essays, which continued to grow, were also the foundation for Mount Vernon Slave Life Tours for its first-person interpreters who portray specific enslaved individuals and several small museum exhibits, as well as a large exhibition staged across the entire museum, which opened in 2016 and will be up through much of next year. If you've not had the opportunity to see lives bound together, I highly recommend that you make the time to experience it. Since then, I've con continued to research the topic while consulting the works of other historians as they became available and responding to comments and suggestions made by colleagues throughout the country. So let's turn our attention now to George Washington as a slave owner. Um, okay. Um, George Washington, as many of you probably know, was born in 1732 into a world in which slavery was simply a fact of life. The first Africans had arrived in Virginia in 1619, more than 100 years before his birth, and new research has shown that, contrary to long-held beliefs among several generations of historians, most were enslaved from the outset. The basic outlines of the legal status of slaves in Virginia were clarified in the 1660s and 1670s with the passage of legislating, legislation stating that A, whether children born in Virginia were free or enslaved depended on the condition of their mother in 1662. Conversion to Christianity, B, conversion to Christianity and subsequent baptism would not result in freedom for a slave, 1667. C, masters would have almost total control over how their slaves were disciplined and would not be prosecuted if a slave died while being punished, 1669. And D, the government would police slaves and owner, police slaves, and owners would be reimbursed for any slaves who were killed while being recaptured, 1672. As noted by historian John Coombs, even before the supposedly critical turning points of statutory recognition of slavery in the 1660s and the beginning of direct African deliveries in the mid-1670s, only a handful of blacks in Virginia were held in the capacity as servants. The normative condition for Negroes was enslavement. And with few exceptions, that period of enslavement lasted for the lifetime of an individual. The story of the Washington family in America began in the mid-1650s, when two young men, John and Lawrence Washington, arrived in Virginia. Their family had been loyal to the deposed King Charles, II, Charles I during the English Civil War, and the brothers saw little future for themselves in England, as long as Oliver Cromwell and Parliament were in control of the government, and so they set out to make their fortunes in the colonies. Both quickly established themselves, 
volunteering for public service and marrying well as stepping stones to advancement. Although there's earlier evidence that the family owned slaves in the 17th century, the first specific mention of slaves in the family wills came with the death of John Washington's grandson, Augustine, who died in 1743, leaving land and slaves to his widow and children. One of those children, the eldest son of his second marriage, was George Washington, who was due to inherit the 280-acre farm near Fredericksburg, Virginia, upon which the family was then living, and 10 Negro slaves from his father. By this time, the family was ensconced in the wealthiest 10% of the Virginia population and would have been considered part of the second tier of Virginia's aristocracy, meaning they had little prominence or influence outside their home county. It would be several years before George Washington actually took possession of the slaves in his father's bequest. About 1750, the division of Augustine Washington's slaves was finally made, perhaps brought on by the fact that 18-year-old George had made his first land purchase with money earned from surveying. There had been some natural increase among the family slaves in the ensuing seven years. So the young man actually acquired 11 slaves valued at 202 pounds, 10 shillings. The death of George Washington's older half-brother Lawrence in 1752 brought another group of slaves in two parts. The first included four adults and two children in 1754, while the second was made up of three adults and two children in 1762. As a young adult, George Washington purchased several other people, but it was after his marriage to Martha Danbridge Custis in January 1759 that his overall wealth and his slaveholdings increased dramatically. His young bride was the widow of a wealthy planter, Daniel Park Custis, whose multiple plantations were located over 100 miles south of Mount Vernon in six counties along the York River and on the eastern shore. Daniel Park Custis died suddenly in the summer of 1757 at the age of 46. As careful as he was with money, he'd not drawn up a will, a fact that would have serious ramifications for both his family and those they enslaved for decades to come. This unexpected death left Daniel's 26-year-old widow with two very young children to raise alone, as well as the management of over 17,000 acres of land and almost 300 slaves. Her dower share of the Custis estate brought her a life interest in one-third of her late husband's property, including 84 slaves. Of these people, at least six described as house servants. The infant of one of those women and five tradesmen accompanied the bride to her new home at Mount Vernon shortly after the marriage. Still others were brought up to Mount Vernon later. For example, 22 came north from the Custis plantations in 1770. In addition to the people from the Custis estate, during the 21 years prior to the start of the revolution, George Washington purchased more than 60 slaves. By 1799, the year he died, there were over 300 enslaved people on the plantation. 123 were the property of George Washington, 153 were Custis Dower slaves, and 41 were rented from other owners. Most of the increase during and after the revolution came from natural increase of so people were having, having children, leaving Washington with twice as many slaves as he could use. Washington's management style um, may have formed during his years with the Army and the French and Indian War, but it was perfected on the plantation prior to the Revolution and reached its highest development after that war. An early letter to a military subordinate, written when Washington was only 26, hinted at the mature style to come. You will take care, therefore, to keep up discipline, at the same time use lenity to prevent discontent and desertion. Be vigilant and keep your men sober. Observe order and regularity in the garrison, which keep clean and wholesome. And as your numbers will be few, keep a regular and strict watch. These instructions, so appropriate for the small and struggling army on the frontier, applied equally well to Washington's plantation 30 years later, where the free white population was outnumbered by enslaved Africans and African-Americans by a factor of 10 to 1. 
For most of the years he was in residence at Mount Vernon, George Washington made a daily circuit of his farms. While he may not have gotten to every one of the five farms every day, in the course of a week he checked progress at each and later recorded his observations in a diary. In a letter to a friend following his retirement from the presidency, he, he described his typical daily schedule. I begin my diurnal course with the sun. If my hirelings are not in their places at that time, I send them messages expressive of my sorrow for their indisposition. Then having put these wheels in motion, I examine the state of things further. By the time I have accomplished these matters, breakfast is ready. This over, I mount my horse and ride around my farms, which employs me until it is time. It employs me until it is time to dress for dinner. George Washington wasn't the only plantation owner who felt a need to keep a sharp eye on everyday operations. Shortly after he took control of some land he inherited from his father, Martha Washington's son, John Park Custis, complained that he had been struggling with every inconvenience that a person can meet with in coming to a plantation in every respect out of order. In a letter that must have gladdened the heart of the stepfather who raised him, Custis wrote that he had found by experience already that the master's eye is necessary in most things. This too had a military precedent. During Sorry, I think that you might be hitting your microphone with some papers. We're getting a little bit of feedback from it. Okay. I'm not sure where the microphone is, so I will <laughs> be careful. Um, uh, let's see. During the revolution, Washington wrote to one of his generals, Alexander McDougall, to say how much he appreciated the latter's belief in the importance of keeping officers constantly in the field with their men that I shall order a sufficient number of horsemen's tents or small marquees for the officers so that they will then have no excuse for absence except want of health. By his own admission, Washington kept such close personal watch on the plantation because he felt that was the only way to prevent problems from occurring or once he had begun to stop them at an early stage before things went seriously wrong. As he reminded a new farm manager in the fall of 1793, nothing was inconsequential. It was necessary to look into the smaller matters belonging to the farm, which though individually may be trifling, are not found so in the aggregate. For there is no adage more true than an old Scottish one that many mickles make a muckle. He complained of one hired white overseer that the man was too much of a social creature both making and receiving frequent visits from friends. Such behavior took his attention from his business, leaving the slaves on the farm to their own devices. Little work was done, and several slaves were punished as a consequence, something which would not, in Washington's opinion, have been necessary if the overseer had done his job properly. Besides being unpleasant, Washington realized that punishment, or what he called correction, would never replace the time that was lost and often led to evils which are worse than the disease. In a similar vein, he cautioned another overseer that he must stir early and late, as I expect my people will be working from daybreaking until it is dusk in the evening, and that the only way to keep them at work without severity or wrangling is always to be with them. Mary? Yeah. Can you speak just a little bit louder now? I think because you moved your papers, it seems to have gone away from your microphone as well. Hmm. <laughs> okay. I know it's so much, it's so much easier to do these in person. <laughs> yes, at least then you can do, you know, like <laughs> hand signals. <laughs> okay. Sorry to interrupt um, again. Um, when Washington used the words always with them, he meant that that work, especially occupations that required skill and attention, were to be done under the immediate eye of the overseers. Washington's incredible capacity for registering detail was noted in several tales related by former slaves. Many years after his master's death, one, quote, venerable old colored man, 77 years of age, remembered that the slaves did not quite like Washington primarily because he was so exact and so strict. The most close attention must be paid to the condition of all the roads, fences, buildings, etc. And if a rail, a clapboard, or a stone was permitted to remain out of its place, he complained 
sometimes in language of severity, perhaps to soften the effect of his recollections on his white audience. The old man added that Washington was, however, most, a most excellent man. But within the last couple of years, Mount Vernon became aware of some notes taken down by artist John Gadsby Chapman as he interviewed George Washington's nephew, Lawrence Lewis, during an 1833 visit to Virginia. Lewis became a member of the Mount Vernon household after his uncle's retirement from the presidency and later cemented their connection by marrying Martha Washington's youngest granddaughter, Nellie Custis, in 1799. Lawrence Lewis knew the slaves from Mount Vernon well, having inherited quite a few of the Custis Dower slaves through his wife's share of her paternal grandfather's estate. He also served for decades as one of the executors of George Washington's estate, which made him responsible for the continued care of elderly slaves who had been freed by the terms of his uncle's will. And so from George Washington's death in December of 1799 until about 1833, um, Lawrence and the other executors continued to take care of the elderly slaves from Mount Vernon. And according to Virginia law, elderly meant anybody over 45. Um, so um, it, it gave Lawrence a, a really good opportunity to get to know these people. I found one of the stories told by Lawrence to be particularly troubling. He described a serious incident that would have taken place in the period between Washington's return from the revolution in late 1783 and the beginning of his presidency. This was a time when Washington appears to have made some changes to the way punishment was handled on the plantation by requiring a system of review, uh, which may have been something like a court martial in order to protect his slaves from capricious into 18th century eyes, extreme physical punishment. When his secretary, Tobias Lear, wrote a letter to a friend back home in New England concerning his life at Mount Vernon in early 1788, he mentioned that no whipping is allowed without a regular complaint and the defendant, and defendant is the word he used, found guilty of some bad deed. The story told by Lawrence Lewis many years later illustrates the process. When Washington laid off and arranged the beautiful lawn in front of the house, the servants were in the habit of passing and unpassing without regard to the pathways and to the great injury of its beauty and regular growth of the grass. An order was issue, issued that no one should walk on the grass or off the path. The general in a morning walk discovered the print of footsteps out of place, yet no one had done it. Nobody was fessing up that they, they had walked across it. The print of the footstep was measured and examined. All the servants were called up. A shoe was found fitting the impression exactly, and the offender was severely punished. The law was afterwards respected, and the offense not repeated. Although Lewis never said, the severe punishment probably involved whipping. Several years later, a well-known view of Mount Vernon's West Front was produced about 1792. Now attributed to artist Edward Savage, it shows George and Martha Washington walking on the Bowling Green with a small group of friends and family members, as well as some of their pet dogs. If you look closely at this scene, you'll notice what appear to be both hired and enslaved workers walking on the pathways around the Bowling Green and the circular driveway in front of the mansion. After reading Lawrence Lewis's version of the backstory, I've never been able to look at this painting quite the same way. Probably the biggest factor in the evolution of Washington's views on slavery was the Revolutionary War, in which he risked his life, his family, a sizable fortune, and a stable future, fighting to obtain freedom from England based on some relatively new and idealistic concepts about the rights of men. During the conflict, his views on slavery were radically altered, evidence that he truly believed the wartime rhetoric about freedom and liberty. Washington himself made use of this language and could hardly fail to see the irony when he expressed the view to an old friend in the summer of 1774 that the British authorities from whom we have a right to seek protection were endeavoring by every piece of art and despotism 
to fit the shackles of slavery upon the Americans. Two years later, in orders to his soldiers at Cambridge, he reminded them that it is a, a noble cause we are engaged in. It is the cause of virtue in mankind and that freedom or slavery must be the result of our conduct. In July of 1776, Washington challenged his army with the idea that the time had almost arrived, which must probably determine whether Americans are to be free men or slaves. In contrast to their lives as free men who would have any property they can call their own, the feat would mean being consigned to a state of wretchedness from which no human efforts will probably deliver them. He closed by challenging his soldiers to show the whole world that a free man contending for liberty on his own ground is superior to any slavish mercenary on earth. If the Americans could not see it for themselves, the enemy did not hesitate to point out the rebels' hypocrisy on the matter of slavery. One of the best known statements on this subject was Samuel Johnson's quip, how is it that we hear the loudest yelps for liberty from the drivers of Negroes? Washington's slave owning was used as another reason to hold this foremost leader of the revolution in contempt. Responding to a wartime rumor that Washington had been captured by the British, an English traveler in America named Nicholas Cresswell responded with sarcasm. After noting that Washington's great caution will always prevent him being made a prisoner to our inactive general. Cresswell described the American commander as a, a most surprising man, one of nature's geniuses, a heaven-born general if there is any of that sort. What really irked Cresswell though was that a Negro driver, so it's, a, it's another phrase for an overseer or foreman, should with a ragged banditti of undisciplined people, the scum and refuse of all nations on earth, so long keep a British general at bay, nay, even oblige him with as fine an army of veteran soldiers as ever England had on the American continent to retreat. It's astonishing, it's too much. By heavens, there must be double dealing somewhere. When Washington wrote a few years after the close of the war that liberty, when it begins to take root is a plant of rapid growth, he was simply noting what he had found to be true in his own life. Within three years of the start of the war, Washington, who was then 46 years old and had been a slave owner for 35 years, confided in a cousin back in Virginia that he longed every day more and more to get clear of the ownership of slaves. The only option he had for doing so at this point was to offer them for sale. Virginia slave owners were unable to free their enslaved property until 1782. As he explained a few months later, it would be a matter of very little consequence to me whether my property is in Negroes or loan office certificates. But in trying to decide about selling them off, he admitted to having scruples arising from a reluctance in offering these people at public venue and on account of the uncertainty of timing the sale well. He also believed that if these poor wretches are to be held in a state of slavery, I do not see that a change of masters will render it more irksome, provided husband and wife and parents and children are not separated from each other, which is not my intention to do. About a decade later, Washington refused to purchase a particular slave, commenting that he already had as many slaves as I wished, and that he was not willing to exchange other for others for him because I did not think it would be agreeable to their inclinations to leave their connections here, and it is inconsistent with my feelings to compel them. These scruples would have important implications for the latest, later management of Mount Vernon. During the war, Washington traveled to parts of the country which were, in the words of historian Isaiah, uh, Ira Berlin, societies with slaves rather than the slave society in Virginia where Washington had grown up. Berlin noted that in the latter, slavery stood at the center of economic production and every relationship from the most intimate connections between men and women to the most public ones between ruler and ruled, all relationships, all relationships mimicked those of slavery. By contrast, in New England and the mid-Atlantic colonies, 
slaves were marginal to the central productive process. Slavery was just one form of labor among many. It was also during the war that Washington saw black soldiers in action, fighting alongside whites in the Continental Army. In fact, within seven months of taking command of the army, Washington approved the enlistment of free black soldiers, something he and the other general officers had originally opposed. They began in late 1775 by re-enlisting free blacks who had fought in the army previously and been let go, much to their disappointment when Congress disapproved of their presence. Five years later, Washington proposed a method for reorganizing two Rhode Island regiments, noting that objections could best, could best be handled by dividing the black soldiers who made up the one unit evenly between the two and making up the difference with new recruits so as to abolish the name and appearance of a black corps. So in essence, he's integrating the army, which would be the, you know, the last time that happened until after World War II. During the revolution, Washington was exposed to the views of several idealistic young men who ardently opposed slavery and whose opinions he valued. John Lawrence of South Carolina, for example, proposed the formation of an African-American Corps in his home state after service in which those soldiers would receive their freedom. Early in 1782, when trying to determine what the British would do next and thinking that they might send reinforcements to Charleston, Washington wrote to Lawrence that, I know of nothing which can be opposed to them with such a prospect of success as the Corps you have pr proposed should be levied in, Cali in Carolina. With a little more than two years, within a little more than two years after the end of the war, Washington's former aide, Alexander Hamilton, um, had become one of the earliest supporters of the Society for Promoting a Manumission of Slaves and signed a petition to the New York legislature calling for the abolition of the slave trade, something he referred to as a commerce repugnant to humanity and inconsistent with the liberality and justice which should distinguish a free and enlightened people. Lawrence sadly, Lawrence sadly died during the war, but Hamilton and another of Washington's favorites, the Marquis de Lafayette, continued to correspond about the abolition of slavery when he learned about the formation of the Manumission Society from a New York newspaper, Lafayette told Hamilton that, as I ever have been partial to my brethren of that color, I wish if you were one in the society, you would move in your own name for my being admitted on the list. Between the end of the revolution and the start of his presidency, abolitionists began approaching Washington on the subject of slavery. Often they brought or sent pamphlets for him to read. By the end of his life, he had a small collection of these works by such authors as Anthony Benizet, George Buchanan, Thomas Clarkson, Brian Edwards, and Granville Sharp, written between 1776 and 1793. Over and over again in these years, Washington reiterated his conviction that the best way to effect the elimination of slavery was through the legislature which he hoped would set up a program of gradual emancipation for which he said he would gladly give his vote. As he assured his friend Robert Morris in 1786, he hoped that no one would read his opposition to the methods of certain abolitionists as opposition to abolition as a concept. I hope it will not be conceived from these observations that it is my wish to hold the unhappy people who are the subject of this letter in slavery I can only say that there is not a man living who wishes more sincerely than I do to see a plan adopted for the abolition of it. But there is only one proper and effectual mode by which this can be accomplished, and that is by legislative authority. And this, as far as my suffrage will go, shall never be wanting. The years between the end of the war and his own death were also a time when Washington and others were examining ideas about race investigating and debating the differences between various peoples and what those might mean. Much of this can be seen in questions about the origins of Native Americans, another group about whom Washington changed his views over the course of his life. He was intrigued to learn from his Baltimore agent Tench Tillman in 1785, for instance, that the Chinese crew members of a newly arrived ship 
quote, are exactly the Indians of North America in color, feature, hair, and every external mark. Washington quickly responded that he'd always had the impression from his reading that the Chinese, though droll in shape and appearance, were yet white. Tillman responded that the Chinese of the northern provinces are fairer than those of the south, but none of them are of the European complexion. This would really have given Washington something to think about because he knew just on the basis of his purchases that the Chinese had long had an advanced civilization and were the source of luxury goods such as silk, silk fabrics, ivory fans, lacquered dressing glasses, and fine portrait porcelains that were the envy of the world. If they looked not like Europeans, but were very much like the native peoples of the Americas, with whom he had considerable experience on the frontier, he would almost have been forced to wonder what non-white people were capable of. A few months after this exchange with Tillman, Washington was approached by the Marquis de Lafayette, writing on behalf of Catherine the Great of Russia, in order to obtain information about Indian languages for a universal dictionary. Although extremely busy, Washington jumped into the project, asking for help from a number of correspondents throughout the country. As he had known it would, the project took several years to complete. In a letter to Washington accompanying his contribution for the dictionary, Richard Butler also discussed theories about the ancient inhabitants of America and how the contemporary tribes had come to live where they did, surmising that the Iroquois may be of Tartar, meaning Mongol, origins or descent, as they may have come from the northern parts of Asia across to our continent and stretched some along the seacoast by Hudson's Bay and others by way of the lakes from the high north latitudes where the Asiatic and American continents approach each other and their language differs exceedingly from all the Southern Indians. Washington replied that Butler's observation about the remains of older civilizations and other traces of the countries being once inhabited by a race of people more ingenious at least, if not more civilized than those at present dwell there, have excited the attention and inquiries of the curious to learn from whence they came whether they are gone and something of their history. So he's, he's talking about the mound, the mounds uh, that are left like, around Cahokia in Illinois and wondering where did those people go. Um, a few years later, the Reverend Jonathan Edwards, who had grown up in Stockbridge, Massachusetts among the Mohicans, to whom his father was a missionary sent Washington a copy of a dictionary he'd complied, uh, compiled on the Mohican language. In his thank you letter, Washington wrote that he had long regretted that so many tribes of the American Aborigines should have become almost or entirely extinct without leaving such, such vestiges as that the genius and idiom of their languages might be traced. He went on to say that language might give clues to the descent of kindred of nations whose origins are lost in remote antiquity or illiterate darkness. When he forwarded the information for the dictionary to Lafayette, Washington let slip some clues to the contemplative, visionary side of his personality, which his quietness in public tended to hide. Should the present or any other efforts of mine to procure information respecting the different dialects of the Aborigines in America serve to reflect a ray of light on the obscure subject of language in general, I shall be highly gratified, for I love to indulge the contemplation of human nature in a progressive state of improvement and amelioration. And if the idea would not be considered as visionary and chimerical, I could fondly hope that the present plan of the great potentate of the North, meaning Catherine, uh, might in some measure lay the foundation for that assimilation of languages, which producing assimilation of manners and interests should one day remove many of the causes of hostility from amongst mankind. Washington had additional opportunity to think about race during his presidency, when the public's attention was drawn to a number of cases in which people in America seemed to be changing from black to white. In July of 1796, Henry Moss, who had what today would be diagnosed as vitiligo, was traveling to Philadelphia by way of Winchester, Virginia. Born about 77, 
born about 1774, <laughs> it's late. Um, <laughs> um, he was the son of a black father and a mother who was described as dark mulatto and had perhaps been with the army during the revolution as a waiter to a Colonel John Neville. While in Winchester, he was seen by several hundred people who could not refrain from expressing their surprise and astonishment at the wonderful change which the almighty hand of omnipotence has wrought in him. It was reported that Mark Moss carried certificates to prove that he had been born black how long he continued in that state, when the change commenced, how it progressed, etc. Moss reached Philadelphia by September of 1796, where more details of his story emerged. He had been, quote, born of a full African complexion and was then in his mid to late 30s when his skin began to gradually change. One person wrote that he'd seen Moss several times and even examined him with a magnifying glass, noting that his African complexion has changed in most parts of his body to that of a fair European. Moss became very well known, both through his travels and exhibitions, as well as through publications about him in newspapers, periodicals, and the journals of groups such as the American Philosophical Society, where Dr. Benjamin Rush discussed his and similar cases. According to his story, Historian Joanne Pope Mellish, more than a dozen similar cases were brought to the public's attention between 1788 and 1810. At the same time, American seamen were being enslaved by the Barbary pirates, and the public was wondering if living in a different environment was gradually changing black people to white in North America and might not bring about a similar change to white Americans in North Africa. As Mellish notes, people were questioning the meaning of race and asking, could enslavement transform whites into a servile people as dependent and instrumental as black slaves? If so, physical characteristics might not be a reliable indication of aptitude for enslavement. All of this brought up questions that tested environmental explanations of differences against hypothetical hypothetical inner or innate and fixed ones, and they probed the validity of external physical markers in locating essential human identity. Not only were all these questions being discussed around Washington, but he was serving as president as the sailors were being captured, and Moss was actually examined and viewed by both Washington and his Secretary of State, Thomas Jefferson. Washington was aware of arguments that environmental factors could influence change in appearance. In 1798, he sent six sheep from Mount Vernon to a correspondent in Antigua with the comment that it is a fact well ascertained that the woolly tribe of animals change their coating whenever they are removed to hot climates, going from what he described as fur to a coarse wool and then to hair. Washington thought that it would be curious to to observe the gradation in time required for this process of nature and send the gift so that the fact may be established under your own eyes. If this sort of change could happen in the animal kingdom, why not with men? It is hard to believe that these experiences with other ethnic groups and such profound changes of heart about both slavery and Native Americans would not have also influenced Washington's relationships and interactions with the slaves at Mount Vernon. Giving up slavery was not as easy as one might think, especially when doing so might jeopardize the very country that Washington had spent so many years of his life to bring into being. According to Thomas Jefferson, in a conversation with Attorney General Edmund Randolph during the presidency, George Washington had confided that on the hypothesis of a separation of the Union into Northern and Southern, he had made up his mind to remove, meaning to leave and be of the Northern part. The fact that such a separation was even being discussed must have been terribly painful for Washington, who very much believed the United States had been brought in to being by the actions of God and had written that the man must be bad indeed who can look upon the events of the American Revolution without feeling the warmest gratitude towards the great author of the universe, whose divine interposition was so frequently manifested in our behalf. 
and it's my earnest prayer that we may so conduct ourselves as to merit a continuance of those blessings with which we have hitherto been favored. Washington, theologically speaking, was between a rock, his belief that slavery was wrong, and a hard place, the fact that the southern states still supported slavery and might leave the union he believed God had brought into being if the institution of slavery was threatened. This is a good stopping point, and I'd like you to invite you to read the book to see how he settled this issue that plagued him for so many years. So I guess we can go to questions, right? <laughs> yes, we saw a few fabulous ones. Let me just pull them up. Um, let's see. There was one interesting one. So COL Bill, I'm not sure what the COL stands for. Uh, Kashkushko wrote a will in 1798 dictating his U.S. assets to the education and freedom of U.S. slaves. He and President Washington obviously had a relationship. Is there ev any evidence that they discussed slavery? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but they probably did because um, that was a subject that often, you know, came up with foreign officers who were a little... Um, you know, who were very curious about the institution of slavery and um, wanted to know more about it. Um, but I really don't know about Washington and Kosciuszko. Okay. Uh, what about Lafayette? I see a question from Scarlett that says, can you speak about Lafayette's experiment and his attempts to convince Washington to also work towards ending slavery? Right. So as the war, you know, sort of got towards it and Washington and Lafayette were talking about um, an idea what Lafayette had about for buying a, a plantation um, in um, Latin America and um, where they would free the slave or work the plantation with former slaves and um, show that it was possible to work a plantation without, you know, without slaves, with free people. And um, Lafayette, sadly, was um, put into prison, um, I think not too long after he bought the, the land. And um, his wife, Adrienne, um, ran that at another plantation from France, <laughs> long distance. So she wasn't there to, you know, be a direct um, manager like um, Washington had suggested. Um, I forget what happened. Um, and Mrs. Lafayette, Madame Lafayette ends up going to keep her husband company in prison. And um, <laughs> it, it, so she, she couldn't keep doing that either, so. <laughs> okay. Um, he did not take part in that experiment. He was interested in it, but throughout the 1780s, after he got back from the war, there was like one financial issue after another, so I don't think he had the money to, to spend on a big experiment like that. Okay. Uh, Robert Lloyd asked an interesting question that I've actually never thought about myself. Were slaves involved in the Culver spy ring? Don't know. <laughs> they weren't his slaves, and um, the, the people who were, might have been involved, and yeah, I really don't know. <laughs> and, and spy rings are one of those things that, you know, every second grader wants to know about, and it, 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 I just glaze over and oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> my That's the glamorous part of history right now. You got to talk about the spies. I know. My husband is a big fan of, like, World War II and um, Cold War um, espionage. <laughs> All the things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Uh, Kimberly Cox asks, do you know the reason Martha freed Georgia's slaves? I've seen a couple of reasons from she thought they were in trouble and against her in some way to that they were costing her too much money. Is any of this true or just a rumor? Uh, well, um, in his will, Washington arranged that his slaves would be freed on Martha's death. And he said, even though he really hoped that it could happen before then that it could be have that they could be freed as soon as possible um 
you know, he didn't want her to have to deal with watching the breakup of the families because um, in the 40 years the two of them were married, Custis Dower slaves married George Washington slaves, and that meant that there were quite a few families that were going to be broken up when George Washington's slaves were, were manumitted, and he didn't want her to have to deal with, with all of the, those issues. Um, she actually, like George Washington died on December 14, 1799, and in mid-December of 1800, she went to the courthouse in um, Fairfax County and arranged for, um, you know, and actually signed the papers so that they would Georgia slaves would go free on January 1st, 1801. Um, she had been advised to let them go early by um, some of the men in the family who were worried that she would, you know, that they might try to kill her in order to hasten their freedom, getting their freedom. Um, so, you know, that's... It's every historian just going... Yeah, and and then so at, we we know um, you know kind of what was going on because Abigail Adams came out to see her right about the time she'd sent after she'd signed the papers, and so people knew that they were going to be going free in just a couple of weeks. And Abigail said that um, they were the the people who were going to be freed were just very um, anxious about what was, what was gonna happen to them. And um, Martha was also uh, very worried about what was gonna happen to them. And um, she told Abigail that she felt like a wife and a mother to them, which was an interesting statement, I think. Um, the word family is used often in your book, but it wasn't quite in the sense of family that we think of today and not quite your children, but familiars, but in a weird kind of way. And right, there's always right. a weird definition right now. <laughs> <laughs> so um, family was used um, in, in Virginia and also up in New England and um, in to, to mean basically your entire household. So all the people you're responsible for <laughs> who live with you and, are, and you're responsible for them and legally. And um, so it, it includes children, it includes cousins who are you know, moving in, it includes the servants who are living with you, white or black. Um, they're all part of your household and then you would speak of them as your family. Okay. Dana uh, asks, well, first she says, your book was the first book of quarantine I read back in March. Uh, <laughs> just thought I'd let you know, you do have many, many fans in the room. She says, I was surprised to learn Washington paid his slaves for certain things so they could go to Alexandria and buy them. I was wondering if this was customary among slave owners. Jefferson, Monticello is much farther, much further from a closet, uh, closest town that might facilitate any type of shopping. Right, so um, Washington bought things from his, often bought things from his slaves. And also they were free on Sundays to go into the market in Alexandria where they could sell um, produce that they had um, grown in their private gardens. Um, Cause it, it looks like each family had a, a garden plot of their own and um, some of them, some people made things that they would sell. And we find references to buying brooms from one of the slaves at Mount Vernon. Other slave owners let their slaves do that as well. So they're sometimes buying, the Washingtons are sometimes buying things from other people's slaves. Or um, I think a lot of people knew that George Washington was, was a real that he, that he really, really, really loved fish. And so they caught an extra large something as uh, an enslaved person from some other plantation may come over and um, sell it to him. Um, the Washingtons frequently bought vegetables, but also eggs and chickens and um, 
and a lot of produce of, of every kind. And, um, and like I said, they could either sell things in Alexandria or perhaps like other people's slaves did. Washington slaves might have gone to other plantations to say, I've got this, you know, would you like uh, to buy it? And so, yeah, that was a, a not unusual um, thing to happen. The Jefferson, one of uh, Thomas Jefferson's granddaughters, I think it was, kept a, um, a special ledger for things that she bought from the slaves. And it's, it's usually foodstuffs. Uh, I see a few questions about after the the slaves were freed. Uh, somebody said, were they provided with any money or other necessities? Uh, were they educated beforehand in any way? Uh, so what happened on January 1st when everybody was allowed to technically leave? I wish we had, you know, somebody's diary from that day that said this is what happened, but we don't. Um, but within months, um, no one, um, most of the people are gone. Um, and Custis Dower slaves had been moved to some of the other farms that made up the plantation so that um, they've got about an equal number of people to do the work on, on each plantation. Um, the, um, <laughs> this is what happens when you get to be 65. Um, <laughs> like, oh my gosh, I had a thought and it left. Um, the, um, the, um, the laws in Virginia said, the, the laws in Virginia said that, um, when a slave owner freed people, that they were responsible for continued care of any children who didn't have parents. They were, they were also supposed to take care of um, anybody who was considered elderly. And as I mentioned before, that's anybody over 45. So like, his, Washington's estate was continuing to take care of people until the 1830s. And um, we know that some of the freed people um, stayed together and formed uh, free black communities in Fairfax County. And we're just starting to learn more about, um, about those communities. Um, we know there were intermarriages after they were freed. From, so different members of, of these families, sometimes married. Um, within about a generation, um, they were, um, a, lot, a number of them were landowners in uh -huh. their own farms. And um, it continued. You know. <laughs> Uh, one question I have is, when you think about the enslaved population in Mount Vernon, you know about Hercules, you know about William Lee, you know about, even about Oni Judge and her runaway, uh, runaway to New Hampshire, but are there any enslaved people that you learned about at Mount Vernon whose stories you think that we should know when you did all of your research over the last 40 years? Is there somebody who you just went, wow, they need to be known about. Their story was very fascinating and there's documentation on it, which is even an added plus for us. Um, one of my favorite, one of everybody's favorites is a seamstress named Charlotte who is featured in several stories in the book. And she, had a volatile temper and <laughs> was easily set off. <laughs> and um, she most famously got into an argument with one of the farm manage with the farm manager. And um, he felt she was rude and impudent and um, it, it, this was the time of year, so it's um, winter time, and it's when they're killing hogs, and it's one of the 
main times in the year when the slaves would get um, fresh meat. Um, you know, so most of the time they would get salted pork or something like that. So that they're being given fresh meat. And Charlotte asked for a share of, of it before he was ready to give it to everybody, give the meat to everybody. And um, he told her she was going to have to wait, which made her mad. And she followed him back to his, his quarters and threw um, a spare rib at him. And, um, and, and he, took, he took his riding crop and beat her. And um, this took place, for those of you who've been to Mount Vernon, um, there's a circle store. When you come out of the, the mansion on the west front, there is the kitchen, then there's a circle, the, what they call the circle storehouse. And in the back of the circle storehouse is where the overseer, the, the farm manager, um, Mr. Whiting lived. And this is, that's where he beat her. And um, the next day, she's a, a spinner and a seamstress, so she needs her hands, you know, to do sort of the work she's doing. And she, re she didn't go to work the next day because she said he'd injured her finger and she said she couldn't. So he beat her again. And she was really furious, understandably. And um, she said she hadn't been beaten in 14 years, which takes it back to the um, middle of the revolution. And you remember, in, I, I mentioned that about this time, Washington um, had changed the rules so that overseers were not supposed to, or that anybody in manage, management wasn't supposed to beat anyone until there had been an examination of, of what, of the incident. And um, so in this case, Mr. Whiting was doing something he wasn't supposed to do. And um, and she was yelling that she, she was going to get, she was going to talk to Martha Washington and tell her what happened. And um, so Whiting you know, pulls out the paper and his, his pen and, and writes to George and says, this is what happened until his side of the story. And um, Washington, you know, the old general, you know, you've got to keep the <laughs> chain of command and do things properly. And he, uh, Washington said, well, you know, if anybody's being impudent and, and acts like that, but yeah, they should be punished. So you did the right thing. Months later, after Whiting has died of tuberculosis, and they're looking for um, a, a replacement for him, Washington says, oh, I wish I could find somebody just like Mr. Whiting because he was so wonderful. And then he, he and Martha come back from Philadelphia to Mount Vernon and um, uh, it's obvious that Charlotte has gotten to them <laughs> um, because Washington's writing, he's just found out what a horribly debauched person Mr. Whiting was and he doesn't want anybody like that in this role and he's having a really hard time finding anybody. Um, so anyway, that, that Charlotte is, is somebody that everybody gets a kick out of and enjoys, um, even though she had sort of a rough story there. Um, the incident when she could have been whipped and, and wasn't was uh, that took place during the revolution No, it wasn't then. It was it. Um, it's between the the revolution and the um, and the presidency and the the. Other. It's tired, and I'm losing. Anyway, um, <laughs> um, what happened was that Charlotte was in Alexandria with another enslaved woman. Um, they're walking down the street. Charlotte's wearing her best dress and they've been sent into town for um, on air, you know, to pick up something, an errand. They're walking down the street and this woman comes out and comes running up to them and accuses Charlotte of having her dress. Her dress had been stolen from her two years before when she um, 
took in an indigent young white woman um, and this young woman stole a number of clothes from this woman, Mrs. MacGyver. And um, Charlotte um, and Mrs. MacGyver, who's a Scottish lady whose husband is a merchant in Alexandria, um, get into not exactly a slugfest, but pretty close because Charlotte threatened to thrash her. And a friend of the Washingtons, Mrs. Herbert, came out of her house, gets Mrs. MacGyver, takes her in saying something like, this is not seemly. And, <laughs> and then, but when she gets home, Mrs. MacGyver, you could, has her husband write to George Washington. And you can tell that she's just, just like looking over his shoulder the hot, the whole time saying, now you tell him, you tell him, George Washington, that this is what happened. And she said, <laughs> and um, we know that she wasn't, um, that, that Charlotte hadn't been whipped for, so whatever else had happened to her. <laughs> we don't know what, what did, because we've only got Mr. MacGyver's correspondence and nothing from George Washington back to him. Um, yeah. So <laughs> um, she's quite a character and we all love her. <laughs> I can see why. <laughs> all right, so that's about all the time we have. Uh, thank you, Mary, for joining us and for that great lecture. Thank you, Mary from Francis Tavern for moderating. <laughs> Um, and I never get to meet another Mary. It's exciting. <laughs> uh, and thank you all for joining us this evening. Thank you to those who have donated to the museum. Uh, remember, your donations help keep us alive, help keep us delivering our programming and sharing the history of the American Revolutionary Era. Uh, keep an eye on our website for all of our digital content and upcoming events. We have an upcoming lecture on Tuesday, June 30th that is listed on our website and we're going to be adding some more lectures pretty soon. Uh, so yeah, thank you for being with us this evening, this afternoon, this night and have a wonderful rest of your day and hope to see you soon. Good night.